Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 17, Continental Divide. The next day, between the second and third shows, I was up on the roof of the theatre feeding the doves. It was important to keep them well fed, Houdini had told me, because if you produce a hungry dove, it is more likely to fly off and look for something to eat, so you need to weigh them down. There was a great view down Market Street and out over the bay from up there, and I was keeping the basket tucked behind a chimney so the beaky little fellows didn't notice the enticing vista of freedom. I chuckled to myself at the thought of Charlie's impotent fury. Unsurprisingly, he wasn't speaking to me at all. Suddenly I heard the metal fire door at the top of the stairs clang, and I was not alone. I hurriedly strapped the basket lid down and peered around the brickwork to see who it was, and it was Tilly, wearing a long coat over the top of her magician's assistant costume. "'So this is where you've been hiding,' she said as I emerged. I nipped over and opened the door a crack to check that no one was coming up the stairs behind her. The coast was clear. "'Don't tell Charlie,' I said. "'If he finds these beauties, he'll like as not let them out.' "'Yes, that's what he'll do. He's a monster.' I looked at her. She didn't seem her usual bubbly self, somehow. "'Is something the matter?' I asked. "'You told Charlie, didn't you? About Frank. About... you told him that Frank proposed to me, and Charlie told Alf to let him go. It had to be you. I didn't tell anyone else.' She was beginning to get tearful, and I tried to put my arms around her, but she pulled away. "'I would have let him down gently, you know. I could have done that. I didn't need any help from you.' And Frank didn't need to lose his job just because he liked me. How do you think that makes me feel? Did you even think about that? Listen, I said. He had to go. He was... what? Well, dangerous, I said. Nonsense. He was. He tried to brain me with that ore. Well, that was a joke. He beamed Charlie as well. An accident. And he shoved me off the back of the boxcar. I could have been killed. Rubbish. He did. I went flying over the railing and was hanging on by one hand, and he was looking down at me. And did he try to help me? No, he did not. I don't believe it. Frank was kind and, and, and thoughtful. Frank was a jealous nutcase. I'm glad he's gone. I'd do the same thing again. Tilly said nothing, just shaking her head in disbelief. I decided to change the subject. Have you seen the Chronicle? I said. She didn't answer, so I took the folded clipping from my inside pocket and read it out loud. Fred Carnot's A Night in an English Music Hall kept the audience in continuous roars of laughter. This sketch is almost a whole show itself, and the star turn is undoubtedly Arthur Dando as Dr Bunko the Magician, whose finale took your reviewer's breath away. Congratulations, I'm sure. I was just talking to Sid Grauman, the owner. He says they're actually turning people away for the first time since he opened the place. Well, that's marvellous, isn't it? And all down to your efforts, too. Nothing to do with the rest of us. Hey, hang on, I didn't mean nothing to do with Charlie at all. Well, he's had his fair share of attention, hasn't he? Maybe he'd have helped you get even more laughs last night if he'd been given fair warning. Did you think of that? I was definitely feeling the frost in the air now. You're taking his side, is that it? Not at all. 
but perhaps it's time you realise that there aren't sides, that everything isn't a contest between the two of you. What's the matter? Has something else happened? She turned away and looked out over the rooftops, over the bay. Do you know how I spent this morning? She said, eventually. No. How? Listening to Alf Reeves telling me how very disappointed he is in me. Ah, and how very disappointed he is in Amy, too. She's had a terrible time, you know, because of course she knew all about Charlie and me taking that night off back in New York. She could hardly have missed it, could she, however good Stan was at covering. But she didn't tell Alf a word about it when he got back. He was absolutely raging. Perhaps he's got a point. What? Perhaps she should have told him. What? And drop me right in it, you mean? I shrugged. Well, like you did yesterday. You couldn't stop yourself, could you? You saw the chance to score a cheap point off Charlie, and you never gave a thought to me, to what it would mean to me. I didn't think. And this ridiculous business with your silly magic trick. You were so busy trying to put Charlie down, get your nose in front of Charlie, humiliate Charlie, whatever you think you're trying to do. But what about me? I was there on stage with you too, you know? Why did you not tell me what you were going to do? Or don't you care if you make me look foolish as long as you put Charlie's nose out of joint? I tried desperately to come up with something to say, but she had me there, and I knew it. Alf has given me one last chance, you know. I can't afford to put so much as a little toe out of line from now on, or I'm out. Really? And since it is my dealings with you that have caused me the most difficulty, I think it would be for the best if we didn't spend any more time together. What? We shall remain colleagues, of course, and I shall try my best to anticipate and play along with any further inventions of yours designed to spite any other members of the company, but as for anything else, I will ask you to keep your distance. I was stunned. But Tilly, she wouldn't turn to look at me, kept her gaze in the far distance. I'm sorry, Arthur, that's how it is going to be. There was a lump in my throat now, and I could hardly get the words out, the only words I could think of to say. But Tilly, you know, I... Love you. I know, she said, unmoved. I'm sure you do. But I've begun to realise that however strong your positive feelings are for me, your negative feelings for Charlie are stronger. I have to come first. I can't play second fiddle to... All that. I was numb and just stood there like a useless lump of meat. She turned to face me. Well, she said, there it is. She gave me a peck on the cheek, a very sisterly one, and then turned to leave, her blonde hair brushing lightly across my face. "'Wait,' I said. "'Tilly, I can change.' At the top of the stairs she turned and gave a melancholy little shake of the head. Then the door clanged shut behind her, and she was gone. I slumped against the stone parapet and slid down it onto my backside, staring into nothingness until my buttocks were numb. When the discomfort in my bones finally made me move myself, I realised I had no idea how long I had been up on the roof.' The lid of my dove basket was flapping open, and my feathery co-stars were nowhere to be seen. I forced myself to concentrate, forced one foot in front of the other, until I was heading down the stairs back into the theatre. As I reached the wings, I heard the tell-tale tones of Nellie Sherman, fascinating soubrette, and realised it was still only the first half and I'd missed nothing. I wandered on into the gentlemen's dressing room, absent-mindedly accepted a cigarette from Mike Asher, and watched the lads idly milling around, ties undone, sleeves rolled. I found myself marvelling that things were so utterly normal, despite the earth-shattering catastrophe that had just occurred in my world. Alf Reeves passed busily by, and I grabbed his arm. Alf, I said, struggling to form words, can't do dove trick. What's wrong, Arthur? Are you unwell? You look terrible. Birds 
Sloane, I said. Alf sighed, and his shoulders slumped. Right. Right. I'd better tell Grauman. Leave it to me. Charlie, do you hear this? No more dove trick. Charlie looked over from the mirror, where he was refreshing his makeup. So you've come to your senses, have you, Arthur? Realise the importance of being a reliable little support artiste, eh? Good. The next few weeks passed in a miserable, drunken haze. I went through the motions on stage and then retired to whatever bar was nearest to the stage door to take the edge off. Tilly and I barely spoke, and she seemed to spend most of her time, as far as I could tell, either chumming up with Amy Reeves or listening to Charlie telling her how the company should really be making more of the female talent at its disposal. She and Amy both lapped that stuff up like kittens with a saucer of warm milk, of course. You could practically hear them purring, even across a crowded hostelry. I was spending a lot of time with Stan in those weeks, and got to know him a little better. We were friends, of course, but it had always been the sort of easy companionship you fall into at work when you find someone of a similar age, with a similar view of the world, and similar leisure pursuits. He was very easy company, Stan, and he laughed easily and generously, not like some in the world of comedy who would rather give you a pint of blood than acknowledge that you'd said something funny. Not thinking of anyone in particular. Stan was so easygoing, and seemed to enjoy the touring life so much, that I was surprised to discover that deep down he was becoming restless. We were in the Carnot boxcar for one of the longest hauls of the whole tour, 750 miles up to Salt Lake City. In the middle of that day, in the middle of summer, passing close to somewhere calling itself Death Valley, it was a bit of an endurance test. Fortunately, we had our carriage to ourselves, so most of the gents had their shirts open to the waist, and modesty gave way to comfort, or survival, actually, that's what it felt like. Alf, stout fellow, had had the foresight to acquire a large slab of ice, which sat in the middle of the carriage on a trolley, dripping rivulets across the floor, and every now and then someone would limply drag themselves over to it to chip off a piece and press it to their forehead or chest. Lucia, the lovely burlesque girl who had faithfully followed Mike all the way to California, was riding with us, and she was due to continue on to Chicago, having finally been persuaded to try and get her job back. She allowed a substantial piece of ice to melt away to nothing on her sun-browned bosom, her head back, and her eyes closed in a state of ecstatic relief. Most of the men in the carriage were sitting with their tongues out, panting like dogs, I can tell you, and not just because of the heat. Charlie never seems to get ill, that's the thing, Stan complained. It's all well and good understudying the lead part if I never ever get to go on. I need Alf to see me, and for the good word to get back to Carno. But Charlie is simply never going to let that happen. I sympathised, of course, with a grunt, and opened a couple of bottles of beer. It's not just that it would be more enjoyable to have more to do. I could use more money. What Carno pays is barely enough to live on once I've paid for basic necessities like food. Beer is food, I said, raising a bottle, which Stan clinked with his own. Perhaps you need to stop handing so much of your earnings to George Seaman. I know, I know, Stan sighed. I'm trying. But it is so tedious in this boxcar, and the card game does while away the hours. To the boxcar, I said, and he clinked me again. You know the rumour is that we'll be booked to do another six-month circuit on the Sullivan and Considine time. Siberia time, I said, pantomiming the chill. I've been wondering whether I can stand the thought of it, Stan said, suddenly serious. You're thinking of leaving? I asked. "'Well, to be honest, I was really looking forward to going home, "'and the money goes so much further there, "'and maybe the governor would put me in a show "'where I could actually show him what I could do.' "'Maybe we should go back to England,' I said. "'Maybe we should. "'Tell the governor what he can do with his pittance "'and his Siberia time. "'Ha-ha! <laughs> yes, that's exactly what we should do.' "'It was just the beer talking, of course, "'the beer and the heat. 
We were just venting our frustrations between ourselves, not formulating anything like an actual plan of action. We'd never have gone that far. When we arrived in Colorado Springs, a sleepy little place that would have needed to acquire a horse to be called a one-horse town, we received a message, which is to say, Alf Reeves did, confirming that we were indeed to continue around the Sullivan and Considine circuit once again, as soon as the current tour finished in Kansas City, which seemed to be in Missouri for some unexplained reason. Six more months of that blasted boxcar, Mike Asher grumbled. Hey, lay off the boxcar, Alf said. You wouldn't like the alternative any better, believe you me. So that means we'll be going back to Chicago, Freddie Jr. piped up brightly. We start in Chicago, Alf said, glancing down at the schedule. Mike did perk up a bit at that, and the thought of maybe meeting up again with the luscious Lucia, but the general mood was mixed, I'd say, at best. Alf tried to whip up a bit more enthusiasm. Come on, everyone, let's see some smiles. This is good news. He was fretting about company morale, and the next day chivied us all into a walking trip up into the foothills to a place called the Garden of the Gods. Here, enormous red boulders perched on top of one another in bizarre formations created by the eroding power of the wind, some like clusters of church spires, others for all the world like strange booby traps, seemingly ready to topple at a moment's notice on top of some unsuspecting coyote. The hot breeze whipped dust up into our faces, and it was easy to imagine that we ourselves were being eroded into odd shapes even as we stood there. The backdrop was the sunlit ridge of the Rocky Mountains, with a wooden sign indicating the location of the Continental Divide on nearby Pikes Peak. This was the rough geographical line to the west of which water would flow towards the Pacific, while to the east it would naturally head towards the Mississippi, the Atlantic, and home. We gathered together in little clusters by this sign, with a massive slab of red rock balancing unfeasibly behind like some enormous head on a tiny spindly neck, all waiting for Albert Austin to prepare his camera for some commemorative snapshots. Charlie, Stan, Mike, Freddie and myself made up the first group. Charlie and I ended up with our arms around one another's shoulders, and the sudden thought that history would record that we were the best of chums meant that I completely forgot to smile. And then we made way for the married couples. By chance this meant I found myself standing over to one side, close to Tilly, for the first time in what seemed like an age, apart from the minutes we would spend together nightly on stage, of course. So, I said, six more months then? So it seems, she said coolly. Stan and I were talking about it, I said then. We're finding it pretty hard to make ends meet. Well, she said. I don't know why I said what I said then. Perhaps I simply wanted to provoke a reaction. I wanted to see if the thought of me leaving altogether would betray itself in her face. I wanted a hint as to whether our current estrangement was a temporary thing, whether deep down she was thinking she would one day soon forgive and forget what a fool I was, give me another chance. So, we're thinking of leaving, Stan and I, I said, unless the governor stumps up more cash, that is. Her face was a mask of disinterest. Is that so? she said. Oh, yes, I said. Definitely. Well... How about that, she said flatly. Then it was her turn to join in with a group photograph under the looming red rock, her and Amy, with Muriel and Emily, and I was left standing there alone as she skipped over with a broad beam on her lovely face. What did that mean? Was she disguising how upset she would be if I left? Or did she really not care? Before the show the very next day, Alf Reeves came into the green room, his face serious, a beige-coloured slip of paper in his hand. "'Your attention, if you please,' he said, raising his voice only slightly. Heads turned towards him. "'Stanley! Arthur! Step forward!' Stan and I took a couple of strides into the middle of the room, a little unnerved by the ominous atmosphere all of a sudden. "'What ho, Alf?' I said. "'Something up?' 
This wire just came from Mr. Carno. Alf gave a little cough and began to read. Please purchase Big Hat and wear it while reading out this wire. Stop. Stan and I looked at one another, not sure what was happening. The Big Hat was an old trick of Carno's for keeping his performers in line. Whenever a comic would have the temerity to suggest that he was worth another bob or two a week, the governor would reach into the cupboard behind him and bring out the Big Hat as a none-too-subtle visual hint that the supplicant would be requiring more spacious headgear. There was also a tiny pair of boots which he could imply with equal subtlety that you were getting too big for. We can take the big hat as red, I presume, Alf said, still serious. We nodded. The governor goes on. No pay rise for Jefferson and Dando stop. Pay rise? We haven't asked for a pay rise. Oh, I'm sorry, Charlie said then. I thought you said you would leave unless the governor came up with more cash. What? We never did, did we? Stan said, frowning at me. Yes, Charlie insisted. Definitely, you said. I suddenly realised that the one time I had said something similar was to Tilly, back in the Garden of the Gods, and she must have mentioned this to Chaplin, who'd seen his chance to make his move. I, I might have said we were thinking about it, that's all, I mumbled. Is there more, Alf? Charlie said. Alf glanced down at the wire and nodded. Replacements on the way, stop. Replacements, I said. What do you mean, replacements? Alf took a moment to interpret the remaining money-saving shorthand. Evidently Ted Banks and Charles Carden will be joining the company in Chicago. What? Stan cried. Tell them not to come. Well, I can't very well do that, can I, even if I wanted to? They're probably halfway to America. But... Stan and I gaped at one another, struggling to take this in. So that's it? We're out? I'm sorry, lads, but there it is. And just like that, for me and for Stan, our highly promising Carno careers were at an end. We were out. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Chapter 18. His Luggage Labelled England Stan and I travelled back to England on the Lusitania, the very liner on which we should have travelled out to America in first-class splendour nine months before. Alfred managed to slip us just enough petty cash to make the crossing in steerage, and we had a few days with nothing to do but watch the waves, eat, drink and think. 
Uppermost in our minds, of course, was what the hell we were going to do when we got back. We were out of the Carno company, booted out, ignominiously, without that safety blanket, and without the glittering prize of attaining number one comic status to drive us on. I could still hardly believe the sheer calamity that had befallen us. Stan wasn't a man to remain cast down for long, however. It's an opportunity, don't you see, Arthur? A great opportunity. We can actually create something ourselves. Create a turn, a sketch. Put all our own ideas into it. Make it the funniest thing ever. And he would pace happily up and down the deck as the Atlantic foamed and spumed by, with gags and slapstick ideas fizzing out of his comedy brain, every now and then ducking inside out of the wind to jot something down. My time watching the waves was given over to brooding and resentment. I had to hand it to Charlie. He'd stitched us up good and proper, telling Carno we wanted more money. But had he overheard me talking to Tilly, or had she told him about it? Later, in a private moment. Stan wasn't having any of it. It was just a misunderstanding, that's all, he insisted. Not Tilly's fault, and not Charlie's either. Ha! I snorted derisively. I know we have a bit of a thing about him, and you reckon you should be number one in his place. I beg your pardon, he is number one in my place. But I've roomed with him for months, and we're good friends. He wouldn't do anything bad or underhand, not to me. After a while, Stan's blithe sunniness began to get on my nerves a bit. You do see, don't you, why Charlie wanted to get rid of us, I said, one day on deck. We're a threat, both of us. A threat? No. You know he saw you, don't you? What do you mean? You know he saw you when you stood in for him, when he took his night off. No, why on earth would he do that? I don't know, because he has a screw loose. He came and watched you, and ever since then he's known that you're every bit as good as he is, and that is why you had to go. For a split second I thought I'd made a chink in his benevolence, but then... Charlie wouldn't do that. Not to me. Finally, the two of us stepped off the boat train at Waterloo Station and shook hands solemnly. "'Where will you go?' I asked. "'You remember I told you about my brother Gordon, the theatre manager? At the, what was it, Metropole in Glasgow? That's him? He's to be the manager of a new theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue called The Prince's. It's not opened yet, but he's fitting it out, and he has himself a little place on High Hoban. "'I've invited myself for a visit,' he grinned. "'Indefinitely. You?' Charlie and Clara Bell are minding some of my belongings, and I will see how the land lies there. They will know how to reach me, whatever happens. Stan nodded. Well then, this is it, he said, hefting the handle of his trunk. See you at the corner, I said. See you at the corner. A short tram ride later, I found myself sitting at the kitchen table of the Bell's house in Streatham. Charlie Bell, a long-established Carno number 2, and my landlord when I last lived in London, sat opposite me lighting up a pipe, and his wife Clara stood at the stove, pouring boiling water into a large teapot. "'So you've left the governor's employ, then?' Charlie said, between puffs. "'Yes, I'm afraid so,' I admitted. "'How did that come about?' "'Long story short, it was about money,' Charlie grunted. "'Yep, that'll do it.' Even though Charlie had worked for Carno for many years, the two of them didn't really get on. He and Clara were friendly with Edith Carno, the governor's first wife, and as a result were privy to far too many tales of domestic cruelty to have a good opinion of the old bastard. They'd installed Edith in the house next door so they could keep a protective eye on her. Clara brought the pot of tea to the table. So where will you be living? I coughed. Well, I was hoping... "'I'm sorry, dear,' said Clara. "'Your old room is let out, of course. "'Well, you've been gone nine months.' "'I understand. "'It's one of the governors, name of Billy Crackles. 
I'm afraid the house is chock full of Carno's boys at the moment. We've even got a fellow on a cot in the back parlour. But we'll keep your bags until you find somewhere, and I'll ask around. There are quite a few theatrical landladies in this neck of the woods. Thank you, that would be very kind. Charlie waved this away. So what will you do now, then, to make your way? I don't really know, I said. I suppose I could go up to the fun factory and throw myself on the governor's mercy. I was half joking, but only half. Charlie sucked in a breath, shaking his head. No, you don't want to do that. Don't give that man a hold over you, eh, Clara? Clara nodded. He's quite right. If you want to get back in, you need to make Fred Carno think he's made a big mistake. Come up with some sort of turn, you mean, I said, apprehension knotting my barrels at the very thought of this. Yep, Charlie Bell nodded, sitting back in his chair and jabbing the thin end of his pipe in my direction. And make it a good un. With nowhere to lay my head, I was bereft of ideas. I finally decided to make my way up to the fun factory, Fred Carno's base of operations in Camberwell. Maybe I would see a friendly face or two there, someone who could help me out. I arrived just as the company's omnibuses and carriages were leaving, carting dozens of performers to various music halls the length and breadth of the capital, as they did every late afternoon. I caught fragments of happy chatter on the breeze as they parked away past me, and it was hard to think that I was not going with them. The street emptied, and I was on the pavement alone, standing outside the big double doors of the fun factory's scene dock, where the sets for the governor's hit sketches were constructed. I peered inside, remembering the first time I'd done so, when the Won't Detain You was being built there, the hours I'd spent painting that ocean liner set before Carno had elevated me onto the lower rungs of the comedy ladder, who'd have thought I would ever feel a pang of nostalgia for those days of slave labour. There was no one around. I could either head into the city and see what I could find, or wait for them all to come back at the end of the night and hope for the best. My feet drifted me down the road to the pub on the corner, the Enterprise, where I had so often mingled with my Carno colleagues on payday. I bought myself a pint I could ill afford, and made it last all evening as I sat by the window looking back at the fun factory, waiting for signs of life. Finally I saw the lights of the first carriage returning, and I hustled back up the road. My luck wasn't in, though, as one conveyance after another tipped its inhabitants out without me spotting a single friend I could latch onto. The only person I saw that I even recognised was Sid Chaplin, Charlie's half-brother, who was braying his noisy goodnights to his subordinates as they set off for their various homes. We had worked together a couple of years previously, but I would have bitten my hand off before I held it out to him for help. Quite apart from the fact that he'd been involved in numerous underhand schemes to do me down and advance his brother, I wouldn't have wanted to give him the satisfaction nor the opportunity to write to his brother with the news that I was on my uppers. I stood shivering in the street by myself once again and watched one of the Carno omnibuses reversing up the little slope to park inside the scene dock for the night. On a sudden impulse I followed it in, keeping out of sight of the driver, and once he'd gone and locked up, I tiptoed up the curving staircase to the upper deck and lay down on the big bench seat at the back. It was cold and uncomfortable, but at least it was indoors. I lay awake, thinking to myself that the fun factory had never been less fun and trying to come up with a plan of action. Could I devise some kind of solo routine for myself? Certainly no brilliant inspiration struck me that miserable night, and even if it had, there was no way I could have translated it into paid work any time soon. I needed something right away, and so as soon as I heard the big doors being opened the next morning, I slipped down the stairs and out, and made my way to the corner. The corner was near Waterloo Station. If you were working the halls, if you were a turn of any kind, you would do almost anything to stay away from the place, for it was where the unemployed of our business went to. 
Well, not to die. We went on stage to do that. We went to the corner just to hang around waiting for something, anything, to happen along. And we called it the corner for short. Its full nickname was far more dispiriting. Poverty Corner. You could pick up work at the corner, of course you could, or else nobody would be there, would they? No lesser figure than Fred Carnot himself had got a big break there years before, when a producer had wandered by looking for an act to fill in for some tumblers called the Three Carnos, who he'd double-booked. Carnot had grabbed a couple of similarly desperate ruffians and rustled up an acrobatic act, and it had gone so well that he kept hold of the name, after changing the spelling slightly, and before too long outshone the originals. There must have been upwards of forty people, gentlemen and ladies, huddling together in groups of two or three at the corner that chilly morning. All were smartly dressed, peacocks almost, some of them, hoping to catch the eye of... well, they didn't really know. Anyone. I leaned against a wall, hands in pockets, to try and get the hang of how this worked. What was going to play most attractively? A sort of superior aloofness, or outright fawning? I suppose that the approach to use would depend on how many days you'd been waiting, waiting waiting. Hang on, though. There was a familiar face, surely. Bill, I said, strolling over to its owner. Whatever are you doing here? Down among the dead men. Billy Ritchie, a small and wirily pugnacious Scot, took my outstretched hand and pumped it up and down. Arthur Dandel, well, well, he said with a grin. I heard you were in America with young Chaplin. What hand, eh? As for more money, I shrugged, cutting a long story short. Ritchie nodded. Aye, right, that'll do it he said. But what about you? I said. You're a Carno number one. You've got it made, haven't you? Ah! Richie hawked and spat into the gutter. No any more. How come? Oh, of course, you've been away, eh? You haven't seen the governor lately. Not for months. Well, he's let things slide a bit up at the old fun factory. It's not just me that thinks it, neither. That's what everyone's thinking. Saying, too, when he's out of earshot. See, he's got himself this fancy new houseboat, the swankiest one on the Thames, if you please, and he's spending all his time over there. It's all he thinks about these days, and the comedy company can go to hell, apparently. There's no been a new sketch in ages, and he hardly ever goes to see what's going on. Well, somebody had to tell him, and that somebody, it turns out, was me. And so I'm out. No, I said, disbelieving. If Carney could let Billy Ritchie go, then no one was safe from his whim, it seemed. Billy had played all the top parts. The drunk, Stiffy the goalkeeper, Archibald Binks. It was unthinkable that he would be on his uppers, and yet, here he was. He'll come round, I'm sure of it. But till then I'm making my own way. I was thinking I might give America a try, actually. The nearest fellow to us gave a little whistle of warning. Uh-oh, look out, here he comes. Who? See the fellow there in the coat with the astrakhan collar, with the silver-topped cane. Yes, I see him. That's Whimsical Walker. Whimsy? What? The original Drury Lane ham. A portly chap in his sixties was walking across the cobbles in our direction, wearing an expensive-looking black coat and a dark fedora jauntily offset atop his brick-square head. He had a companion with him, a skinny old fellow, bowing and scraping along in his wake. Billy Ritchie regarded the approaching pair with a sardonic smile. Now then... Let's have a little respect, lads. There goes one of the great clones, as I'm certain he'd be only too happy to tell you himself. Really? Oh, aye. Took over from Grimaldi, you know, back in the day. Eyes down, boys. Whimsical Walker stopped in front of us and gazed sadly down his nose, an expression of tired disappointment on his jowly face. He tutted to his companion. Dear, oh, dearie me, look at this sorry bunch. Indeed, indeed. I am prepared to lay odds that not a one of them could tell you what a harlequinade is, let alone play one. I'm sure you're right, Tom, 
his companion said, shaking his head sorrowfully. Oh, well, let's move along. Something snapped inside me, and despite Ritchie grabbing at my arm, I stepped forward. And besides, any port in a storm, as they say, or any crust in a famine, more accurately. I wished I hadn't had that thought. Now I desperately wanted some port. Excuse me, I said. I can tell you what a harlequinade is. The pompous fellow turned and squinted at me. Pray do so, he said. It is traditionally seen at the end of a pantomime and is a knockabout comedy routine in which the main performers are transformed into, or sometimes joined by, the stock characters of the Commedia dell'arte, to wit, Arlecchino the Harlequin, Columbine his love, Pantaloon, the policeman, and the clown. Walker had turned and was strolling back plumply towards me, a half-smile upon his lips. Well, well, he said, weighing me up. I held my breath. Was I going to luck into some work on my very first morning at the corner? And if so, what might it be? This one, Tom, the clown's elderly companion said, his pencil poised over a blank page in his notebook for a long moment. No, whimsical Walker decided. Too tall, and the two of them strolled away. Narrow escape that, trust me, Billy Ritchie murmured. In any event, that was the closest I came to a spark of interest down the corner all week. I dutifully headed down there first thing each morning, and then spent the days hanging around, occasionally trying to look bright-eyed and bushy-tailed if some prospective employer hove into view. I relied on Billy Ritchie to identify them for me, but after a day or two he stopped showing up, so maybe something had landed on his plate. At nights I was returning to the fun factory. I told myself I was still looking for a friendly face, but in truth I'd had no better idea than sneaking in there and kipping on the top deck of the company omnibus. At least it was indoors, so it was better than dossing down under a railway arch. There were a few hairy moments, though. One morning a stage manager I vaguely knew, called Wilf Wainwright, bumped right into me as I was trying to slip out, but I managed to pretend that I was in fact just arriving to see the governor, and he made me a cup of tea, after which I nipped out while his back was turned. Another time I was so wretchedly tired that the opening of the big doors, my usual alarm call, failed to wake me, and I came to myself halfway to the garage where the bus was to be cleaned and refuelled. My closest call was the morning Carno himself came to work early. I heard his voice and his unsettling little cough right below me, and when I looked down I could almost see my own terrified reflection in his shiny shoes peeping over the back rail. By the end of the second week I was thoroughly discouraged, and beginning to wonder whether this was really the life for me. Perhaps I should swallow my pride and make my way back to Cambridge for a job and my mother's cooking, which would be sure to come with a heady dash of my father's smug, I told you so, sauce. On the Saturday, the corner was deserted. Clearly the rest of London's theatrical unemployed knew something I didn't, so I walked all the way down to Streatham to visit the Bells again. Partly this was to raid my trunk for a clean shirt, cleaner anyway, because nights spent sneaking into the Fun Factory omnibus were giving me something of a vagrant aspect. Partly also because I was pretty much guaranteed to be offered tea and cake, and that would keep me going for a while. I didn't even get as far as the Bells' front door, though, because as I approached, I saw a familiar figure walking towards me. "'Stan?' I cried. "'Arthur! Whatever has happened to you?' Stan said, looking at me with concern. I suppose I looked even rougher than I felt. "'Oh, just... life,' I said. "'How are you?' "'Me? I'm in the pink,' he said. "'I just left a message for you with your former landlady. She said you would drop by sooner or later.' "'Sooner it is,' I said. "'What was the message?' "'Well,' before he could enlighten me, however, I was hailed from the next-door front garden.' "'Arthur, is that you? How lovely to see you!' "'Edith,' I said to the smiling lady on the other side of the low wall, who was peeling off some gardening gloves as she walked towards us. 
I trust you're well. This is Stan Jefferson, who was with me and Freddie in America. Stan, this is Mrs. Edith Carno. Delighted, Stan said as they shook hands. Freddie's mother, I explained, just in case Stan hadn't twigged. He raised an eyebrow. I'm surprised to see you, Edith said. Freddie's last letter said that the tour was continuing for another six months at least. Is he back too, then? No, no. The tour continues, and Freddie with it, I said. But as for the two of us, we are embarking on a new and exciting passage in our careers, Stan cut in. And is that going well? Edith said, squinting at me rather as Stan had just done. It's new, I said, and different. So I shall be seeing you around the place again. That's nice. I didn't say anything to that, just looked a bit glum, I expect, and she gathered the state of play at once. Are you not staying next door with the bells? They have no room, unfortunately, and anyway, they're committed to housing Carno players. You're not sleeping rough. Oh, Arthur, why did you not simply knock on my door? You can have Leslie's room, and he can come in with me like he does when Freddy comes to stay. And that's not going to happen, is it, while he's in America? You're sure Leslie won't mind? Not a bit. I was overwhelmed suddenly. It felt like weeks since I'd slept in a bed, in a house. In point of fact, it was weeks. Well, if you're quite sure... Of course, Edith said. Bring your things right over and I'll pop the kettle on. Uh, Perhaps a little later, if you don't mind, Mrs. Carno, Stan cut in. I'm sorry to have to drag Arthur away, but we have important business. A pleasure to make your acquaintance. Edith waved a farewell as Stan trotted briskly up the street with yours truly in his wake, thinking wistfully of tea and cake. Important business, I said. Where are you taking me? Islington. Islington? What's in Islington? (laughs) 